Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Milo. I get an opportunity to share with you this morning from the book of Titus. So if you want to make your way there today, uh, we'll get started with that. So I grew up uh, about 60 miles south of here in a small uh, area, country church. I went to is Yorkshire. Uh, is it, the church was in Yorkshire, Central Baptist Church. I went to a Christian school there uh, through fifth grade. And so uh, growing up in that church, there's a lot of things that happen because they're on a small scale uh, that probably don't happen in other scenarios. And so uh, any of you familiar with this area at all? Ar arcade, maybe the Arcade in Attica is as close as maybe. Okay, there's like four of you. Okay, now we're on the same track. That's okay. I understand where I'm from. That's no, no worries there. So I grew up from this small country church. And somewhere I called, I called my dad this week to try to get the specific dates. We know that... Uh, there was a Pastor Dunbar uh, in our church when I was growing up from somewhere between 1988 and 1991. This story I'm about to share with you happened. I don't know the exact year of what happened. But uh, at our church, there was an overhang much like the atrium entrance here. There was an overhang where you could pull cars in and unload your cars there. But it, the church was kind of set back a little bit on a hill. And so there was a, this carport had a drive that went up to it. You'd unload and then you drive away over to the parking lot. And so... The pastor, uh, he drove a station wagon with a woody side, uh, side paneling on the side of it. And that thing was sweet, let me tell you what. And so uh, he, and we're not sure whether it was him or his wife, but pulled up and put the kids in the car and left the engine running and went back inside to get something. And one of the kids, uh, her name is Joy, uh, pulled herself out of her car seat, climbed over the front seat, and put the car in gear. And so the car went down this hill, across the parking lot, and into what we call the Shiloh Meeting Hall, a fellowship hall. Went into the side of the fellowship hall and put a big hole. The car was literally in the fellowship hall uh, with a three-year-old, four-year-old at the wheel. And, um, and so because our church is a small church, everybody knew what had happened. I, there was something in the bulletin the following week. I tried to, like, get the bulletin, and I couldn't do that. It was too much to try to get all that. But there was something in the bulletin the following week about how uh, the pastor was going to be uh, putting new legislature in place so that the church could have a drive-through service in the fellowship hall. Something, <laughs> something along those lines. And so his daughter had led the charge in that process. I tell the, the funny story there just to, first of all, kids are kids and they're going to do stupid stuff and you just got to deal with that and that happens and, and such is life. You know, that wasn't the pastor's fault. I mean, it just life happened and there it was. And, and, uh, but I also tell it because uh, if you see that car sitting in the side of the building, stopped, resting there on the side of the building, the first thing, if you pull up onto the scene, if you're running over there, you ask the question, who is driving this car? And you got a three-year-old sitting behind the wheel. Who is driving this car? So uh, this, this series that we're in, this book of Titus, and we'll get into it a little bit more as we go here, uh, we're, we're, we're asking the question this morning, who is piloting the family vehicle when it comes to the church? Who is piloting the family vehicle? Today we're going to be talking about leadership. We are in the second week of the series called The Grace Driven Church. It's in the book of Titus. And the reason that we're going to talk about leadership is because leadership matters. Do you believe that? And the reason that leadership matters is because people matter. The church rises or falls based on leadership. That's John Maxwell says that. The church rises or falls based on leadership. 
That's a true statement for sure, but leadership does not only occur in the local church. It occurs in other important areas as well. So not only does the church leadership, uh, the church does not rise and fall under leadership, that's not the only place, but I would also argue that marriages rise and fall based on leadership. That parenting rises or falls based on leadership. That businesses rise or fall based on leadership. Companies rise or fall based on leadership. Your school, your school district, our county legislator rises and falls based on leadership. And so if we're going to talk about leadership, leadership is a very big deal. We shouldn't be surprised that it's also a big deal to God. We all understand that. We all live in a culture that understands that leadership matters. And, and we should expect that God would have something to say about it. He cares about it very, very much. And so this morning we'll answer this question. We'll, we'll look at it. We'll, we'll ponder a little bit of who runs the church, who's driving the vehicle. This might be a review for some of you old-timers who've been here for a while or that have been in the church for a while. But it's going to be also opening some new doors perhaps when it comes to how we operate as a church polity or church governing. Many people wrongly assume that our church uh, polity is, is very similar to that what we see in our government. A de democratic style of government is a mistake if we think about that, that the pastors and the elders would be the elected officers or similar to the president and the Congress. If you're thinking about church and leadership in that manner, you are mistaken. Uh, the church business meetings where the members can voice their opposition or they could vote for or against uh, what is being put up there. That would be a very much an Americanized form of leadership. That is not what we are going to see here in Scripture. Well, that system is fine for America. That system, uh, not to sound anti-Baptist by any means, Baptists are generally very congregational-led in their approach. Uh, but congregationalism is not the biblical way to view leadership. It just is not. And years ago, that decision was made here as a church, and many of you walked through that process of what it looked like to be an elder-led church and actually use the Bible as the driving force behind how leadership and how our organization would be structured. As shocking as it may sound, God is not an American. You need to hear that this morning. Most of you love America, and that's good. But God is not an American. He did not set up the church as a democracy. And there are, where there are powerful factions that are driving things and purse strings that make decisions and politics behind all of that, that is not the way that the local church was designed to run. We're not free to impose our American ideals about government onto the church. We have to come back to Scripture to see what the Bible has to say about this. Another model that greatly influences churches in regards to leadership is the American business model. There's nothing wrong with that business model. It's what's developed much of our country. The, the, the free market has changed a lot of what our country looks like because, really, because of the American dream, the ability for people to be able to grow their businesses and to do things like that. But the American ideal of how a business is run is that there's a CEO who makes decisions. There's a board of directors that supports that decision maker, and those decisions are final, and the business has to follow through with it according to that. So if this was a business, there would be the chairman of the board at the top, the board of directors beneath him, the stockholders as voting members, and the congregation would be those stockholders, and the elders or the deacons would be different layers of leadership within that business model. That is just not what we see in Scripture. So where will we find our model? We have to come back to the Bible. If we are finding our models, if we are looking elsewhere, it is a mistake. So we need to come back to Scripture, and today's passages is going to take us directly there. Last week, Pastor Dan was here from Renewal Church. Many of you heard him speak. Some of you for the first time. 
Renewal Church is a church plant in North Tonawanda. Uh, we've been connected uh, as a church for, this is going on four years now. Some of you know that I was very involved in that process and I got to be sent out here from Randall as the planting pastor for Renewal Church. One of the main points of Dan's sermon last week was this. The main point of his sermon was that our identity comes from the God we serve. Our identity comes from the God that we serve. And four years ago, this weekend, was the first time we ever met as Renewal Church as a core group. We met in a storefront, an H&R block that allowed us to meet there. And we started talking about what would it look like to start a new church in the North Tonawanda community. That was four years ago. Can you believe that four years has passed since we started talking about that and about church planting here? Uh, I was Randall and sending that out. I will tell you, though, that our identity, as Dan said last week, our identity comes from Jesus Christ not from anything else. And for me, a very personal journey for me in that process was knowing what my identity was going to be as a leader, what our identity was going to be as a church plant. We could organize our church exactly the same as Randall. We could organize our church exactly as the same as the chapel, which is here in Williamsville. We could organize our church, I don't care, as, as, as much as the Brooklyn Tabernacle. It wouldn't matter. We could organize it in any way, but God had a specific plan for us in North Tonawanda. And I could be a pastor that, that tried to emulate Jerry Gillis. I could be a pastor who tried to emulate Chuck Swindoll or Andy Stanley and try to be those guys. But I have my own identity that God has placed on my life. You have your own identity that God has placed on your life. And so when it comes down to that identity, what are we going to pursue? What are we going to chase after? In this process of planting the church that spring, four years ago, I read through a book by Dwight Smith called Alone at the Top, and I'll tell you that that shaped for me everything in regards to leadership and the local church. Alone at the Top, where he discussed and pointed me as the reader back to Scripture and saying, dig into Scripture, find out what does Scripture say about leadership. Because the churches that you've been around, the, the models that you've seen, the people that you interact with have these other influences that are driving how they lead the local church. And so if this was for me a chance to be a leader and find my identity in Christ, if this for me was a chance to plant a new church and find out what the identity of that church was going to be and what the structure of the leadership of that church was going to be, it wasn't going to be by searching out and finding a model that I liked, but it was going to be coming back to Scripture and finding out what does the Bible say about leadership? What is God's divine plan for leadership in the local church? God has a divine design for you. God also has a divine design for leadership in the local church. So this morning, if you've got that white sheet of paper, it came in your uh, bulletins this morning. It'll help you go through your notes. And we're going to be starting here in the book of Titus. If you found your way there already, I'm glad that you have. If not, there's a black Bible in front of you you're welcome to use. We'll be on page 1251 in that black Bible. If not, uh, use your app on your phone. Use your own Bible. I'll be in the New International Version today. We are in the book of Titus. Your first fill-in this morning to get us started is very similar. It's that John Maxwell quote, everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. If you look at Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we're picking up from where we left off last week. It says this, the reason I left you in Crete, now this is Paul who was writing to Titus, I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. Titus as a leader. So if we're talking about everything rises and falls on leadership, let's talk about for a moment Titus 
as a leader. Titus was Paul's right-hand man. We see different examples of him in Scripture. His name comes up in different, uh, different books of the Bible. But each time that it comes up, Titus is being thrust into some difficult situations, specifically here in Crete where he is sent. Uh, Titus is being sent out here to do what? To appoint elders. Now, Crete, where he was assigned, was the most immoral places on the earth. And Dan dealt with this a little bit last week. It was sort of the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean. What happens in Crete stays in Crete. Like there's, there's a lot of awful things going on there, uh, except what was different is this was an island. And on that island, it was a Mediterranean hub for piracy. So if you can imagine planting a church or starting a church or raising up elders with a cast of Pirates of Caribbean, like that's what he's working with. And so he's got these misfits, and they're all on this island, they're all a mess, and actually what happens with historians say that people there actually would stay drunk all the time. Like that became part of the culture. In the morning, throughout the day, they were constantly drunk. Lying was celebrated in that culture. If you could actually lie and build a good case, like there's some games, Balderdash is a, is a board game our family plays. You get points for being a good liar. I love that game. It's almost like that was the culture there in Crete. That was uh, uh, the fact that if you could get away with a lie or if you could, you could outright say something false and then actually be able to back it up or be able to get people to believe what you're saying, you got extra points for that. Does it sound at all like the culture that we're living in today? Lying was celebrated. It was an art form. In Greek, being Crete was slang for lying. To be Crete was to lie. Stop creting, you Cretan. I mean, you've heard, like, your kids are acting like Cretans. You've heard that before, potentially. They're a bunch of liars. They're a bunch of pirates. This is, this is the culture that Titus is being sent into. Even Paul says to Titus, we'll get there in a couple weeks, in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, even one of their own prophets, he's talking about the Cretans, he says, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars. They are evil brutes and lazy gluttons. Verse 13, Paul says, I have found their testimony to be true. And he's like, listen, this is one of your authors, one of your writers, one of your philosophers who is saying this. And I agree, and when I look around, this is exactly what I see. So Titus, get in there. We've got work for you to do. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Paul put Titus in this role because he knew that Titus was responsible enough to handle this role. He knew that he could trust Titus. He could trust Titus's leadership to do what? To appoint men of character because Titus himself was a man of character. <coughs> Paul doesn't explain for Titus the need for elders. To him it's obvious. Instead, the reason for elders isn't even talked about or a lengthy explanation of what an elder would do. Instead, what does he do? This passage will talk today about the character of elders. He doesn't need to know what their job description is. He doesn't need to know where he could find these elders. He says, just find men of character. As he spoke of the elders' character, Paul gives a good glimpse of what the elders' priorities ought to be today in our local church as well. We also see here the word plural, elders. When I read this passage again, the reason I left you Crete, that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. 
Elders, in fact, is plural every time that we see it in Scripture, minus the times that you're speaking of a very specific, an elder, that elder named Tom or Joe, that elder. Other than that, any time the elders are spoken of, it is spoken of in the plural, that there are always multiple elders. Now, multiple elders might mean there was two or three, but the language leaves no doubt that Paul was talking about putting in multiple elders. He intended plurality. And every occasion that we see him talk about elders in the New Testament, he says the same thing. So we shouldn't skip over that. That little S next to the word elder is a very important thing for us to pick up on. Why is elder plurality necessary? Here's just a couple of things you can fill in if you'd like. Mutual accountability. Every minister, every pastor needs accountability. Though involved in spiritual multiplication and leadership and discipleship, he's still faced with the problem of indwelling sin. He's always prone to his own flesh. He needs elders around him to keep him accountable. As one who's in the position of leadership, as your leader, you want me, I want to have people who keep me accountable. That's what's necessary. Elders are necessary for that process. I don't want to fall into sin. I don't want to be prey to the enemy sneaking up on me because I didn't have people standing around me keeping watch at night. That's why elders are necessary, multiple elders. And accountability among godly leaders of the local church helps to sharpen one another. As iron sharpens iron, so does a man sharpen another's face. Secondly, an increased wisdom. One man has limited insight. There's only so many things you or I can experience in our lives that gives us informed decision making. But when you open that up and say we need a plurality of leaders, plurality and eldership, we know that now we have a wider swath by which we are making that decision. A God-based swath. We have to look at what has God done in your life in this situation? What has God done in your life? How have you seen God move in your life? And in that, let us make an informed decision based on that. As plural elders established in the church, we will find, thirdly, diversity in their gifts. Diversity in their gifts. No man has, no one man has every gift necessary to lead the local church. In that book, Alone at the Top, that I read by by Dwight Smith, he makes a very strong argument by going through uh, the, the books of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and going through Titus and, and going, excuse me, Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 4. As you're going through this, you see again and again the way the elders are supposed to be mutually interdependent, that their role is to be able to lead one another as they lead the local body. Where one is strong, another is weak. Where another is weak, then one is strong. And all seek to labor together for the sake of the gospel of Christ. The humility is the natural result when you have this situation built. God's divine design for leadership in the church was not for man to be alone at the top, but for there to be an independent group of elders whose primary role is this. This comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That is the role of the elders. So here in the book of Titus, as we're reading this letter that Paul wrote to this young Titus as he was going out to appoint elders there, as he was going out to be able to demonstrate what leadership would look like to this, this cast of pirates and be able to just say, this is, I'm going to look for you within this cast of misfits. I'm going to find some elders. I'm going to appoint some elders. I'm going to raise up some elders out of this. We're going to see here a list that is put together that talks about their character. 
But before we even get into that list, we need to note this morning that we are not only talking about four or five or six or seven people in this room who hope to be or are currently an elder someday. That would be a mistake. Because elsewhere in Scripture, we see that these qualities are prescribed everywhere in the Bible for every believer. For every believer, whether they're young, whether they're old, whether they're male or female. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says, don't look down on him for his youth. He still has the same qualification. He still has this necessary living, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. So don't check out on me this morning because I'm talking about elders. Because this is a challenge to each and every one of us. This describes the spiritually mature person. In our lives, we have a natural life cycle. When you are an infant, you are, you are being fed constantly. It seems like every two hours that baby is crying, needs to be fed, needs to be changed, needs to be picked up, needs to be laid down. Everything that you can possibly imagine, that child has you taking care of everything that they need. As that child transitions to, to becoming a toddler, they can, now they can do a few things for themselves. They can open doors themselves. They can waddle around the house. And they can, if you put this stuff on the low level in the house, they can, they can get their own cereal bowl or perhaps even, you know, whatever it is. They can start to do some of their own things. That's what a toddler does. And then an adolescent, you give them even more responsibility. We're beginning that transition in our house where our older kids are beginning to help us take care of the younger kids. It's kind of a sweet season to be able to see that happening. Yesterday we were at the park and we saw the kids pushing their younger siblings on the swings. Like that was nice just to be able to see that. But you're not quite ready to ask them to sign the mortgage. Because spiritual maturity is actually when you reach a point that you are going to take care of another person's life. Reproduction happens, and so because that happens, it means now as a spiritual adult, excuse me, as a physical adult, you are taking care of someone who is born into your house now, and you're going to take care of that infant. It is no different on the spiritual side of things. Some of you are spiritual infants. You've just come to Christ within the last few years, maybe the last few weeks even. And there's going to be a lot that you need to be fed. And we understand that. And the Apostle Peter talks about of milk of the word. And that one day you will, you will want the meat of the word. But right now you're an infant and you need the milk of the word. And that's okay. But you are to grow. You are to become toddlers, to become spiritual adolescents, to become spiritual adults. And it's passages like this that help us assess and be able to look and say, am I a 50-year-old thumbsucker? Because a spiritual adult, a physical adult, you can tell what a physical adult looks like because of the responsibilities that they carry, because of the way they carry themselves in their lives. They can hold down a job. They can do different things. But spiritually, are we using a similar litmus test to be able to say spiritual maturity is demonstrated in this way. Spiritual leadership looks like this. Where do we go to find that litmus test? We go to God's Word. So here we are today. In the book of Titus, leadership is very important to God because people are important to God. God understands the quality and caliber of leaders that will decide the effectiveness of his people, his church, and his mission. So if you're following along that white sheet of paper, here's your fill-ins this morning. There's three areas that God wants to help you lead well. There are three areas that God wants you to help you lead well. Here's your first one. Lead your family well. Lead your family well. Well, verse 6, an elder or a spiritually mature person, an elder must be blameless, 
faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Let's break this down a little bit. First thing it said there was an elder must be blameless. He is a man of integrity. He doesn't live one way at church, but if you polled his family and talked to his family in the minivan on the way home, that they would tell you something very different from what was being represented there at church that morning. He is a man of integrity. They would affirm that he displays the fruit of spirit in his home. Secondly, faithful to his wife. Quite literally, this means a one-woman man. Over the years, this has been looked at many different ways and be able to try to really parse out what is this scripture going after. And the way that I see it best is this is a one-woman man. It speaks to his character. He is devoted to his wife alone. His thought life is under control because of God's spirit. He does not look at pornography. An elder is not a man who has a, he is a man who has a track record that is above reproach. When you look at his life, the relationships that he has with women other than his wife are healthy and above board, and, are, and you can keep him accountable in that. He has mental and moral purity. This also means that a man who has never been divorced, he has been married for 50 years to the same woman, might be disqualified from being this type of leader, this type of elder, because he, does not, he is not a one-woman man because of what he's looking at, because of what his thought life is, because of how he talks to and treats other women. A man who's gone through a divorce as a young man might have matured. That may be his past life, and now God has changed and transformed that. And so divorce is not something that keeps him away from being a leader in the church, but it is something that is looked at carefully. But in that process, you can say and say, this is something that has changed. He has dealt with the sins that led to his divorce, and now he is moving forward. That is part of the old man. Old things are gone. New things have come. He's been faithfully married to his current wife for many years. He's mentally, physically faithful to her and to her alone. He is a one-woman man. This requirement does not bar a single man either for becoming an elder, a leader in the church. But similar things apply. Is he morally pure? Does he have his thought life together? And then lastly, this verse says that he leads his family well. Does that mean that some, a couple who does not have any kids, that they are disqualified. There's no way that he could be a leader or elder in the church because they don't have any kids to lead. No, it's when he has kids, when he has a family, is he leading them well. To lead a family well, you have to be engaged. You have to involve, be involved. One of my favorite kids' movies is The Incredibles. You learn in The Incredibles that you should never be a superhero with a cape. It's dangerous to be a superhero with a cape, Right? There's a scene in that movie where they're at the dinner table, husband and wife, kids are running all around, everything's spinning out of control, and the wife is imploring for her husband, would you, and she uses this word again and again, engage, I need you to engage. Parenting, leading your family well, dads, moms, you must engage. It means that you have to be involved. Each year, researchers they go through and they, they rate the most difficult jobs on the planet. And usually near the top of the list is working on a fishing boat in the middle of the Bering Strait in the freezing cold temperatures. There's great Discovery Channel type of shows about these things. Or being a logger and working on an oil field. They're always high up there on the danger scale. But one thing you never see making the list of the most difficult jobs is the job of parenting. The job of parenting is the most difficult thing you may 
ever do. In order to lead your family well, parents, we have to acknowledge that role. We must engage, accept the role of what it means to raise this child for the glory of God. It is your God-given privilege and responsibility. And throughout the Bible, we see this going all the way back to the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. God gives instructions to parents on how to raise their children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 says this, Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Talk about God and his ways and his law. In order to be a shepherd to your children, in order to take care of your kids, you must take care of what we have learned to know as teachable moments. We have to be intentional about these things. A teachable moment is anything you can do or say that can help point your child to Christ. If you sit down as a family and watch a movie, and there is undeniably a moment in that movie that reflects Jesus, it doesn't have to be, it can be a movie put out by Disney or anyone else, but you can see that in that movie there is, there is this calling. You, you see God right there in front of you, whether the world sees it or not. They said, the reason why this character matters is because he sacrificed himself for his friends. Stop the movie. Talk about that moment. Don't miss that teachable moment. Moments that point a child back to their walk with God. Parents need to be consistently looking for teachable moments. Secondly, parents need to be consistently looking for repeatable moments. Repeatable moments. Moments like it says here in, in Deuteronomy. Repeat them again and again with your children. Repeatable moments might be as simple as making sure that your child is with you in the pew on Sunday mornings. That is a repeatable moment. Making sure that your child sees or, or knows that you are in God's word every single day. That is a repeatable moment and knows that you asked them to do the same. And you didn't just ask them once back in 2004, but you've asked them again and again and again. A repeatable moment. There's no more powerful training tool than modeling what your kids should see happen. Demonstrated in front of them. Modeling for them, again, repeatable moments. Again and again and again, teachable moments, repeatable moments, leading your family well. So there are three areas that God wants to teach us how to lead, leading your family well. Secondly, leading yourself well, leading yourself well. Who is the hardest person you can think of to lead? The hardest person you can think of to lead. Most parents, you're thinking of that teenager right now. That's the hardest person for you to lead. Maybe you've got someone in your workplace who is constantly late. And not like three minutes late, but like 30 minutes or 90 minutes late. And you cannot figure out how to get them there on time. It's your responsibility. And you just want to fire them. But you know the next person that comes in behind them might be exactly the same. And so you've got to deal with this problem. Who is the hardest person you can think to lead? I think the argument being made here is you are. Leading ourselves is one of the most difficult things to do. We can tell someone else every day of the week, you need to change your eating habits. This is unhealthy. And then we go and eat whatever we want. You need to get up this morning and exercise. You need to do X, Y, and Z. But then actually telling ourselves, even though we know what we're supposed to do, Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. He says, even though I know what I'm supposed to do, the very thing I'm supposed to be doing is what I cannot do. And then the very thing that I should not be doing is what I am doing. Leading yourself well. Leading yourself well. Verse 7 and 8. 
Lead yourself well. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In other words, character counts. Leading yourself well matters. It would be a dangerous thing for you this afternoon on the way home as you're leaving church. Dads, moms, look in the rearview mirror, ask your kids. You know, is there something that I should be working on? Is there a flaw in my life that you notice? And every hand goes up in the back of the car, the kids just start shouting things. They know what it is. They know what it is. And they can't fix you. And they can't tell you that. But they know what it is and you know what it is. Can you lead yourself well? In my car, most of the kids would probably raise their hand. My wife would probably, you know, help them in this process. Can you keep your temper? Can you be self-controlled? Can you give instruction without dropping the hammer? Leading yourself well. Character counts. The first thing that should jump out to you about this list is that these God, the God-given characteristics of a leader is, is that character counts with God. When you look at this list, you should see character, character, character. And in our culture, when you look around us, we see when it comes to leadership that charisma, skill, and power often rise up above character. Does character even matter anymore? I'm not sure. But in the divine design, it does. Paul lists a bunch of character traits here. He does the same elsewhere when he is writing to Timothy, when he is writing to him about what it means to be an elder, to be a leader in the church. If you're going to lead yourself well, God wants to work on your character. If you're like me, you're looking at this and saying, I'm not sure if I can fulfill this. I'm going to need some help in this. This process is going to be more difficult than I can handle alone. Jesus Christ is there to support you in the process. Jesus wants to help. In John 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So yes, this list should seem hard to live out. This list should be unattainable. When we meet with our elders for the first time throughout the year, when we, when we get together and we say, being an elder is an impossible task. Pastoring a church is an impossible task. You had better understand what it means to be connected to the vine because that is the only way. For apart from me, you can do nothing. For just as the branch is connected to the vine, our job is to stay connected to Jesus. And through Christ, his job is to stay close and develop character in you and in me. The third area that God wants to help you lead well is this. Lead your neighbors well. Lead your neighbors well. Verse 8, going back to that, he says, Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. God wants you to be hospitable. He wants you to enjoy having guests in your home. He wants you to be willing to be able to put yourself out there, allow yourself to be vulnerable and exposed to the fact that people might actually see what your life really looks like. Hospitality carries the idea of acting in a loving manner to your guests and treating them with generosity, treating them with care. 
Your guests should not be a burden to have in your house, to avoid or a responsibility to ignore. And I know that some of you have the gift of hospitality and this comes naturally to you and that's good. Some of you are struggle through this, but you need to understand that this is really what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, is to be hospitable, to be gracious to other people. The warmest, most inviting, most hospitable house on your block can be and should be your house. The most loving, kind, hospitable, gracious building location in this area, in this region, in this city ought to be the local church. Why? Because God's grace should be emulating through the members of that church and what he is doing in that hospitality should just ooze out of that place. Why do you think we work so hard with things like name tags and things like, you know, the greetings that we do? Get an opportunity to talk about something as silly as a freezy pop. Why? Because it helps you to interact with one another and be hospitable. It's, it's beyond what we normally do and naturally do. But it's what God tells us to do. former church I served at, Pastor Tommy Hargrove used to say this all the time, and it has just been ingrained in my head. He said, good news, excuse me, good works is the bridge by which the good news can travel. Good works is the bridge by which the good news can travel. And I have found that to be true again and again and again. Two nights ago, three nights ago, Thursday this week, we had a block party. We hosted a block party on our street. And this is our third consecutive year doing it, usually the first or second uh, week in July. And if you're in a care corridor that hasn't put something together yet, this is an opportunity for you. Uh, we're able to use, because of our partnership with the Frontier Baptist Association, there's a, there's a block party trailer that we can check out and we can use. And it makes us look like rock stars, to be honest. You, you show up to your block party and you've got a bounce house, and you've got cotton candy, and you've got popcorn. Why do they provide that? Why do I tell you that this morning? Because those are just tools. Popcorn, cotton candy is just a tool to be able to get you face-to-face -face with someone and be able to share your story with them. And I'll tell you, after three years of doing it, the relationships that are beginning to form and the questions that are beginning to be asked, it's all about a good works, simple as simple as a block party, is a bridge by which the good news can travel. And we've seen it again and again and again. It was a very sweet time for us. God has been gracious to us. We had three consecutive years of just a beautiful evening to bring it together. God uses those things so that you can share the good news in a real and practical way. So we've got those three areas that God wants to help you lead well. Lastly, though, here's your last fill-in. God calls us to lead a trustworthy life. Lead a trustworthy life. Titus 1.9 says this, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Because you have been transformed by Christ, because you are no longer a spiritual infant, because you have grown deep into Christ, you have belief in the trustworthiness of the gospel, and therefore you become what? Trustworthy. And because you trust Jesus, you are able to encourage others with his message, and then the rest of your life is devoted to doing the thing that we call here finding your place. You spend the rest of your life helping people find their place in Jesus Christ, finding their place here in our church, finding their place in the community. What has God got you doing in the community? Why has he selected you to live on that street at that location? Why are you in those classes at that university? Because God has allowed you to do that, to live your life out in front of the community. God has helped you to find your place. 
Someone who is leading a trustworthy life understands that it is your responsibility to mentor, to develop, to disciple others and bring them to Christ. It is your leadership that will bring along your spouse. It is your leadership that will bring along your children. It is your leadership that will bring through the next generation of believers who chase hard after Christ. Your roommates at school, your coworkers at Christ, your coworkers will find their place in Christ. And that becomes the greatest priority and passion in your life. That's what drives you, those three relationships, that upward, inward, outward, just motivates all that you do because you understand and you've experienced the trustworthiness of the gospel. So as I close and the band makes their way back up here, I'll take you back to the story that I told at the beginning, that station wagon, that family vehicle, the woody sides, all of that. The reason I remember that vehicle very specifically, and maybe you had one in your extended family, and so you understand this too, that was the only car I've ever been in that I was allowed to sit in the back seat facing vehicles coming at me, right? There was three rows of, car, three rows of seats, and you got to sit in that vehicle, and you got to uh, make faces at cars and push each other around and climb in. You know, the back door opened up like a big tailgate uh, that would just swing open, and you'd all pile in and climb over each other, and you'd sit there and make faces at vehicles and all that. And now I'm your pastor. <laughs> Something changed from there. That, that girl, Joy, the pastor's daughter, you know, something has changed since she was a three-year-old behind the wheel of a station wagon. Things have progressed. Time has gone by. Yeah, that story in my mind as a seven or eight-year-old kid, I mean, that's 30 years ago now that that happened. I remember that story, but I remember that silly vehicle. When we talk about piloting the family vehicle here, as I'm helping lead this church, the reality is that someone brought me from that back seat of the car as a kid who is making faces in the window to the front seat of the car of someone who's able to pilot the vehicle. So here as a church, we currently have this year, we have four elders and three pastoral staff leading the church. You need to understand that that's not going to cut it. That works and works well this year. These are men of character. These are godly men. These are men that line up very well with what we see here in Titus. But that's not going to cut it. At some point, there needs to be some development. There needs to be a leadership pipeline that understands the responsibility we have as the local church. The local church's responsibility is to grow and develop others. To grow and develop children who are children now, but one day will be the elders. One day will be the spiritual leaders of this church. One day will be the missionaries that we send out. One day will be the church planters that we send out. And it's not just the six-year-old who's, who's going to one day be that role. It's, it might be, and it very well should be, a life that has been restored from sin. Look at Scripture. Look what Jesus did with the tax collector, Matthew. And he becomes one of his 12. Look what Jesus did with the woman at the well. Look at half of the New Testament is written by this man named Paul, whose name was once Saul. And what was his pride in life? It was to murder Christians. We have a responsibility. The local church has a responsibility. That character is put forefront. Character counts. But leadership matters. And so here as a church, every January, February, we start to get names together and make a list of who could potentially be elders for our church. That is a waste of time. 
If you're not thinking about that now, if you're not thinking about that in August and September and October, and, and not just trying to point out people that you already see, but the responsibility that it takes. We are the local church. And if we're the local church, then it's our responsibility to develop those type of characteristics in our body. So that those men can be elders. So that those women can lead the church. So they can mentor mothers. So that they can develop others. So that our children that are coming through, they don't fall off when they go into college. And they don't fall off and become first-time parents because they have character that connects them to God. That's the responsibility that we see in the local church. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Let us pray today as we leave for God to give us grace as we raise up leaders. Dear Lord, we love you and praise you for your word. Lord, the Apostle Paul speaks very clearly here to his reader Titus as, as to what it is, Lord, that you have called us to as spiritually mature followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ, as those who would run hard after you, knowing, Lord, that it's only through your power as the vine connects to the branch. Lord, that is through that that we develop this characteristic, this character. Lord, we run hard after it this morning. We pray that we would be a congregation. Lord, it is not going to work for us to have three or four leaders. Lord, your church was not meant to be vertical. It was meant to be lateral and to go in every direction in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Lord, we are going to do that as your body. But in doing so, Lord, let us be a church that develops people of character. And if there's any here this morning that say, I want that. I know that I'm damaged goods now, but I want to grow into that. I want to pursue hard after that, Lord, that 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 would be something that would spark this morning here. Others, Lord, who have served and have been in those roles before, Lord, let them mentor, let them develop, let them challenge others. Lord, we look to your word. Everything rises and falls on leadership, Lord, but your word is the standard. Your word is the litmus test. And we repent this morning of looking elsewhere for that. We were not without flaws. We pray that you would work in us, that your grace would continue to mold us and shape us into who you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.